Thank you for joining me for another edition of Author Conversations. I'm Johnny Foster. During the past century, some of the world's largest wildland fires have occurred in Oregon. Today, I am joined by author Sean Davis to discuss his book, A History of Oregon Wildfire Fighting, which is available now. Sean is a recipient of the Purple Heart and the winner of the 2015 American Legion's Legionnaire and has received the Emily Gottfried Emerging Leader Human Rights Award for 2016. Sean teaches college writing literature classes around Portland and spends his summers fighting fires along our West Coast. And Sean, I want to start off with, because these are conversations, a way for us to talk about your book and also get to know you. And I want to say thank you for your service in many areas, including in the military, uh, with human rights, and with fighting fires on the West Coast. When did you realize service was going to be such a large part of your life? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. I mean, so I grew up where I, where I live now, up in the mountains of uh, uh, the Cascades. And um, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity because most people who lived up here were loggers and the timber dollars left or right when I was going into high school. So 70% of my graduating class joined the military. And so I guess service kind of started that way. Uh, it was more of an escape of poverty. But while I was in the military, I did learn, you know, um, integrity, uh, selfless service, a lot of leadership skills that I that I use today. Um, and it just kind of it worked for me. <laughs> you know, I like working. I think uh, I like working for the community. And I think community is where you start if you really want to change the world, because it's uh, we need a lot of people trying to change the world right now. It's pretty crazy out there. So how did you get involved in fighting wildfires? Well, the first time I fought wildland fires, uh, I was in Hawaii. Um, it, we, we were on a range shooting our weapons, and we lit it on fire. <laughs> and so they got us oh. there, uh, putting it out, you know, got some tools in our hands and, and started putting it out. Um, that happened a couple times. I got out of the military. uh after September 11th, you know, the day after I joined the National Guard in Oregon and the the Oregon National Guard's historic role was helping, you know, the state. And they were used a lot of times for fighting wildland fires. Uh, that was the first time I officially got my red card. That was back in the Biscuit Fire in 2000 and uh, fought fires for the Oregon National Guard, you know, working with the U.S. Forest Service and the Oregon Department of Forestry. And then after How, the military, sorry, go ahead. After I got out of the military, you know, I missed, uh, <laughs> you just kind of miss being in this type of situations where there's a little bit of danger. Uh, so I started, uh, my buddy, who was also a combat veteran. He was on an engine crew. He's like, come on, man, let's go do this. Uh, this is, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and it was, and that was shoot. That was years ago. Um, he's now an engine. Um, he's a engine. He's a, fire chief in uh detroit lake and uh but i didn't go out this year actually nobody really went out this year it was pretty 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 quiet year honestly well i mean that's good yeah. that it was yeah especially you know after we see from california and you fight fires all up and down the west coast right yeah yeah um yeah up down in california up in washington i mean uh it wouldn't be um unheard of to go to Idaho, you know, sometimes. So, yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, last year, so this year has been pretty quiet, but last year was our, our largest year in the state of Oregon. Uh, I mean, we spent over $514 million just in the state alone on wildland fires. Um, so we had uh, 18 over almost 1900 fires last year that burned about 900,000 acres. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's larger than the state of Rhode Island, but I guess a lot of things are, but, uh, it, <laughs> it was a lot of fire this year. We only really have, I mean, I was looking at the stats this morning and we only have, uh, I think 11 fires for a total of 38 acres. So, I mean, it's good stuff. Not, not so much for the guys that are trying to make a living fighting fire, but, uh, but it's good for the state. So when you talk about last year in the loss of acres, is that would that make it larger than the 1865 fire that you mentioned in the book that was considered uh, one of the largest in Oregon history or the largest in Oregon history? No, no. I mean, uh, it's been it was the most we've ever spent as we you know report on that. But no, those fires are a lot bigger. Those, those fires in the late 1800s, early 1900s, those were the biggest fires uh, you know we've ever seen. I mean, for instance. The, with the big burn, you can see that from here in Oregon. You can see the the night sky light up in the east. You know, uh, if you're on, if you have good elevation, I mean, you can see them that far away. Uh, like I said in the book, those fires were so strong that you know they 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 suck in wind so much they're uprooting trees and then throwing them, and uh, it was pretty insane. I I. I I try to imagine, like, trying to, you know, what would it be like to live through that type of period? It would just be, you know, what would you think? Especially, like, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, like, what is going on? Is this the end of the world or what? And I'm sure a lot of people thought that. It was pretty, pretty intense. Oh, no doubt about it. I'm sure a lot of people packed into churches pretty quick oh. when they saw what was happening. Yeah, yeah, man. Crazy. So uh, what? So you're talking about that? Is that an updraft that pulls the trees up? That's fed by the energy of the fire. Well, you know, the fire. The more intense it, it it burns, the more oxygen it needs, and so it just sucks. That's why, you know, you see these large uh, complexes. So a complex is a series of fires, and if you see, uh, you look at these complexes on the map every day. You can, you know, you can see the red on the map that that uh, designates the fire and how it spreads. The smaller fires will move towards the the biggest fire, and and it's just really crazy. And it looks like a, a migration pattern. They kind of all if there's two big fires, like what happened last year, uh, the biggest fire we had in Oregon was uh, the Klondike complex, and it burnt into the Taylor Creek fire, and they were both you know eighty eighty five thousand acre fires. At the end of it. They they burnt together over like miles and miles, uh, and and they became a two hundred and twenty thousand acre fire, which is uh, pretty ridiculous. And that cost that fire. I was on that fire last year. That cost a hundred and twenty eight million dollars to put out. Yeah, so those of you who are fighting these fires, are you volunteers? Are you? How does it? How do you come? About, how do you get the manpower to fight the wildfires? And also, what's the difference between a wildfire and a wildland fire? Are they both one and the same? No, it's the same thing. Wildland fire. That's a, you know, they used to be called forest fires, but you know, they don't burn always in the forest. You know, grass fires. We have a lot of uh, plain out here in eastern Oregon, and uh, even Washington and Idaho. So, you know, anytime it's not, you have the a wildland fire, and then you have uh, a structure fire. And structure fire guys are are totally different. You know, they're two different animals. And they fight uh, fires completely different. 
um, it was pretty, it's pretty funny that the structure guys. So that's, that's a good question because sometimes we do run out of people. I mean, last year we had to have people coming in from Australia and New Zealand to help us fight fire. Everyone that had a red card and a red card is what you get to fight a wildland fire. Everyone who had a red card in the Pacific Northwest was on a fire and we needed more people. Um, it was, it's, it, it's pretty intense. And so what you do is the governor will call uh, what they call a conflagration, and that will okay the structure fire guys to come out. They'll, they'll use emergency funds to pay the structure fire guys to come out and fight wildland fire, which sometimes, you know, they're getting trained more and more, but sometimes they'll bring those engines out and they can't do anything with them except for stay on the road, you know. So, you know, you can picture a fire engine, a big red or yellow fire engine that goes through your town. Those things don't do too well on logging roads, you know. So uh, our engines are more like an F-150 with 350 gallons uh, on the back, uh, of, of 350 gallons to 400 gallons of water, and that's a Type 6 engine. You have Type 4 engines that have a lot over 750 gallons. You have, you know, different types of engines have more, but the, the Type 6s are great. That's my engine is because it can get into a lot more places and be able to turn around on small logging roads and such, and then they just draft out of creeks or whatever to fill up their their um, their tanks in the back. You know, Sean, three hundred gallons of water sounds like a lot, but if you're fighting a large wildfire, how quick does that go? Oh, it goes quick. You got to be so careful with your water. <laughs> you really do. Um, yeah, I mean, and it doesn't do too much if if it you know if it gets into uh, the canopy. You know, if once once a fire crowns, um, the crown fire is it's it goes up into the the branches and such. You can't do anything about that. All you can do is back off and try to figure out a contingency line. But uh, what is a contingency line exactly? Oh, that's when things go wrong and you got to go to the next plan. <laughs> that's plan B, so, C. Like military terms, it's an organized retreat in a way. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's funny because there are so many similarities between the uh, Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service and fight wildland fire than there are to being in the military. You know, the principles of leadership are the same. Um, it, it's in fact, like the first two weeks, every summer I wake up and I'm like, where's my rifle at? I got to figure that out, you know? And then I remember, Oh, I, oh, I don't have one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but instead of calling for fire, you'll, you'll call for water and a helicopter will come in and drop a bucket on something. It's pretty, it's pretty great. I mean, I encourage, especially combat veterans, you know, and, and all vets really to, to try to get into a uh, wildland firefighting in the summertime. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, and you feel, and you're still doing something important for the, for the community and for, you know, it's, it's, it's about that service that we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I imagine it's a pretty good way to, to, you know, if you sound like you're a very action oriented person, I try, uh, maybe that's just, uh, it's maybe it's just muscle memory at this point, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good thing to have. <laughs> I imagine you have to be in exquisite shape to be able to do this job. Oh, you know, I'm 46 now, so I don't know about that. Uh, you know, I'm and also I'm on an engine, but I will tell you, like those the hotshot crews, they are superheroes. They are amazing guys. I mean, they work, and and sometimes they don't even want water water to put out fires. I'll be up there, you know, I'll have a hotshot crew working and putting a fire out. I'm like, hey guys, I got, you know, I have some water. And like, yeah, we're good. Don't worry about it. I'm like, what? <laughs> They, what are the hotshot guys using to put the fire out? Uh, you know, Pulaski shovels. They're just smothering it. Uh, or they'll, you know, uh, you, 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 
you you take the earth, like whatever's out in the woods, and you just scrape that down to mineral soil so it doesn't burn, and you make a line around a fire. And then you throw the dirt on the fire. Um, these guys are, and, you know, if they're not used to water, they're like, fine, we're not going to use it because we don't have it. They can't, I mean, they only water they have is what they're going to drink, and they're out there. Uh, they're out there. They just go, you know, they go way out in the woods. And that's the hotshot crews, but the, the regular hand crews, too, they're just amazing my daughter is going out on a hand crew this year uh she's 23 and uh they just it's it's a lot of uh a lot of hard work um and and god bless them but uh i'd be happy to be on an engine at this point in my life <laughs> i did a lot of walking in the infantry you know I, I was in the infantry for uh well shoot i was in the army altogether for 12 years and I went to Haiti for a revolution, Iraq for the war, and down to uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. So I did a lot of walking. I'm okay to be on an engine at this point in my life. I would say you deserve it, my friend. You deserve to be on the engine. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so how do – what are ways that the non – you know, because we know that humans contribute to wildfires too, but what are some of the ways they start naturally? Oh, lightning strike is actually what lights most of them up here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, yeah, you know, every time you see a, a summer thunderstorm, it's gonna. We just had a thunderstorm here uh, three weeks ago, and from that thunderstorm, nine nine big fires started, and they put they were able to put them out because there's, it's really how much of the humidity that's in the air. You know, uh, East Coast we're not we don't have we're not very humid. You know, uh, West Coast is is more humid. That's why you don't see as many wildland fires over there. But if there's no water in the air. Uh, and it's really, you know, dry out and it's hot and, and uh, the, the foliage is the first to, or the, the, you know, all the brushes and, and the plants and stuff, they'll dry up pretty quick. You get a lightning strike in a, in a dead tree or a dried out tree, uh, it's going to go. And, and that's what starts most of them. I mean, but there are, we, we did have a fire up here uh, last year where I live and it got about a mile away from my house. Uh, called the the rebel fire and that was started by a campfire somebody was out in one of uh, the hot springs that are out here and um the story was that he put a cigarette out in a in a in an old dried stump and it just lit and uh, burnt uh like thirty thousand acres and that's the thing you know one little spark it, it can turn into an ocean of flames within you know hours and it's pretty crazy so you got to be careful with that as well yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What are we doing as humans that start some of these fires, like doing like with a cigarette, um, that we don't realize could cause this kind of fire? Well, it's more campfires. I mean, cigarettes will do it only in the right conditions, and they have to be pretty dry. Uh, but campfires is mostly it. We had a kid up here in in the Columbia Gorge uh, shoot off some fireworks in the in the middle of summer, and that caused the Eagle Creek fire, and that that blew up and was huge. Um, train tracks, you know, the sparks from train tracks cause them a lot. Uh, it could be just machinery. A lot of logging companies will start fire, uh, wildland fires because of the, the, the equipment that they're using. Um, it's, it's, there's all kinds of different, I mean, I mean, I know that, uh, Smokey the Bear concentrates on cigarettes and stuff and that's important. Uh, also he does campfires and well, that's, just, that's also very important, but there's all kinds of ways that we can start fires up here. I mean, everything up here is combustible, you know, including people. So, I mean, that's uh, you got to watch out. Yeah, absolutely. 
that's you know a scary thing to think about is getting caught into a fire like that and fire behaves so weird and it's weird you know you brought that up you know people don't think about equipment but something that's you know not wildland fire related if you look at what happened in notre dame or notre dame however you would like to say it that was you know because we were they were using modern equipment on this wood that was so old and dried out yeah yeah you know and and that's the thing climate change is is real no matter who you want to think is causing it it's it's happening and the 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 forests especially in california you can see right now they're so dry uh that they'll just they're looking for an excuse to go up when we were down in california we were down in uh, willow creek um, it was the river complex out in the in trinity shasta forest uh, we were fighting we were fighting nighttime fire as if it was daytime. And that just means like usually in nighttime you can calm down a little bit because the, the RH or the relative humidity in the air goes up. Um, but not so, I mean, and even last year down in, I was in Southern Oregon, um, on the Gardner complex before I went to Taylor Creek. Uh, we saw, uh, a, a, a crown run at three o'clock in the morning. A crown run is when, like I said, when the, when the fire gets up into the branches and the canopy, uh, but when it runs, it just goes, and it goes a lot faster than you, you think it's possible. And that was at 3 o'clock in the morning. Those usually don't happen because at 3 o'clock in the morning, that's usually when the uh, the relative humidity is going up again. And that's usually when you can take a break. You're like, all right, we might not have to worry about this because the fire, and the fire shrinks a little bit at night because of uh, the, the you know it's colder and there's more water in the air. But not really anymore, and that, and they're really trying to figure out like if this is the way we're gonna have to fight fires from now on, we got to think of some new tricks. And last year, I know they were trying to paint the whole forest red with uh, retardant, and um, that didn't really work. Retardant is so expensive, and they don't really know where the fire goes. And so they, if they spray an area, and they just cover all the trees and the brush with with um, with you know fixed. Uh, with with planes, they just come in uh, fixed wing air, aircraft, and they'll come in. They'll drop a bunch of retardant on an area. Everything will turn red, but the fire not might not even go that way, or it might not go that way for a week and a half, and then you'll have to. And the and the retardant's not any good anymore. Um, so we're really on our heels trying to figure out how we're supposed to be fighting these fires today. Well, and I got, you know, on a day-to-day in here in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina, where they say it's going to be in the high 90s, but the real feel is going to be in 113 degrees, which if it feels like 113 degrees, it's 113 degrees. Oh, yeah. Just ignore that other part. I, you've made me thankful for humidity by telling me all this about how humidity affects things. Oh, yeah, it's horrible, but uh, yeah. And I've been in that heat, too, you know, uh, Kuwait and Iraq, where it's up to Shoot, you think it was an oven setting back home, you know? It's like, man, you can bake some cookies in this heat. It's like 125 degrees and you're wearing all your gear. It's just, it's no fun. But uh, it just keeps getting hotter. July was the hottest year that we've ever had on this planet, you know, last uh, last month. So I know that, yeah, I'm sure anyway, that each fire is different. The life of the fire is different. Um you know, whether it be on the plains or in the forest, but is there a way that you all use, say, weather forecasting to know that how long the life of the fire will be or where it will spread to help you go to an area maybe ahead of it to contain it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't I don't want to belittle the command guys. I say we're on our heels trying to figure out how to fight these. Now, these guys, they're scientists. They really are. I mean, we look at 
the weather forecast um, seven days at least ahead, and and, we're, and they're planning out what the the humidity is going to be, what the temperature is going to be, which way the sun is going to be rising, if it's a north on the north slope or or a, you know a east slope, what's going on there, and how and like and then they look at uh, they have fire behavior experts, they have weather experts, you have so many different uh, specialists at the fire camp. And every morning we go into a briefing and they tell us all about what they think is going to happen. And most of the time they're, they're pretty right on. That's, that's great. I love, I love the way that like the way we are all differently using technology to try to make lives better and to save lives that way. And that, you know, you don't really think about all these scientific fields and areas that come into play. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah, this year or last year uh, was the first time that I ever saw them using drones as much too, you know. So at night they'll put up a bunch of drones and they can tell you, you know, exactly where like little smokers or uh, hot spots are and those that might blow up into fires. And so you go over there and put them out before they even become a problem. So we are definitely using more and more technology every year. But we have all this technology. What did fighting fires look like before our modern technology, back in the 1800s during those large fires? Oh, well, you know what? We do have all the technology, but you can't fight fires without boots on the ground with the tools in their hands. You know, it, it doesn't look too much different. Um, they, we still use some of the tools that they used back then that uh, that might not seem like they're, 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 they'd work too well. Like uh, they'd have like this tool – with uh, two poles with a burlap sack spread uh, between them, and you wet the sack down, and you just smack the fire out. <laughs> and uh, and they, they, you know, we still have that. We don't use it as much, but we have that. You know, they had uh, five-gallon um, backpacks of water with a pump spray, and you walk in there and do it. They've had that since the 40s and 50s. Uh, Pulaski, we, we, that's the you know, number one tool, really, and a shovel. I mean, back east where you guys still have fires, right? And so a lot of you guys come out here um, to fight fires in, in the Pacific Northwest. But it's funny because we fight fires totally different on the other side of the, the country. You know, instead of digging hand line down to mineral soil, uh, a lot of the guys uh, in, 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 you know, North Carolina will just hit uh, like a leaf blower and just blow the leaves out of the, off of the ground and uh, we're good. And it, it's pretty funny. It doesn't work that way up here, but... Uh, but that's how that's how it's set up. These wildland firefighting groups, you know, each state has, uh, uh, you know, like we have the Oregon Department of Forestry. Each state has their own organization. I'll fight fire, and we, as soon as there's one fire in some part of the world or some part of the country, um, they'll all go there, you know. And then once the, all of those resources are used up, then they'll start using contractors, and that's uh, that's why I was a contractor. Is it important to have uh, controlled burns uh, and fire breaks? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, I've heard a bit of an argument about you know that you know on you know with different groups talking you know about having fire breaks and hurting the forest that way and things and you know I just don't. I mean, I can see from a layman's point the benefit of a fire break, but I wanted to know what y'all thought about it. No, I mean you're right. A lot of people think you know just fire's bad, but the reality is wildland fires aren't bad. Uh, uncontrolled wildland fires uh, are, are, of course, bad. Uh, wildland fires that threaten structures are bad, but um, wildland fire is just part of nature. It's it's a, a cycle. You know, the Native Americans up here used to set fires just to to burn the brush down, so the new uh, 
the new grass and stuff that would grow up, the deers would come in and eat. And so they'd have, and they'd be able to plant as well. Uh, you know, but the deers come in, they'd be able to hunt. It's just, uh, it's, it's a, it's a natural part of the cycle. Um, the, our problem up here is that we've, when we've replanted after, you know, cutting trees down, uh, we replant a lot of dug fir, which is a great tree. But if you re replant only one type, um, you want to, you want to have variable canopy sizes. You want to have different, uh, um, trees that are planted. You just do one or, or if you, if you don't, if you fight fires, and there's no fires for a long time and everything gets really thick. Uh, and then you add in the, the, the climate change where everything's getting hotter and drier. Uh, it's just a recipe for, uh, really uncontrollable fires. So we, you want wildland fires. Uh, you just want to be able to have them in a natural way and not let it get out of control and, and burn, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres and, and destroy houses and such. In the wildland, when there is a fire, how long does it take for, because, I mean, nature is incredible the way it can rejuvenate itself and regenerate itself. How long will it take for growth to start back again? Well, I don't, I mean, honestly... Uh, looking at the biscuit fire that was in 2000, you can still see we call them the the we call them the fire scars. Um, you can still see it, you know. Uh, so I mean, it, it could take decades. It depends on how big and how intense the fire was. Uh, from my house to Bend, we have a pass, and you go over the pass, and it's just nothing but um, you know uh, just poles sticking up, and they're either black or or very white poles. And it's kind of, you know, they, they were trees, but, you know, the branches and everything had been burnt off of them. So it's, it's, and that was, shoot, that was, I think that was the biscuit fire or the B&B fire. That was uh, 15 years ago. So, I mean, nature moves slow and, and that's okay. I mean, it just, you know, we happen to only live a hundred years and, and we see what we see, but the reality is it's, it's moving as exactly as fast as it needs to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. No doubt about that. And earlier you talked about how there's a lot of commonality between, uh, you know, with the military and being a firefighter. And, what, you know, some of the terms in the book that you've used, uh, like LCES, Lookout Communication Escape Routes and Safety Zones, is, that sounds like it comes from the military. You're ready to go fight fire. Uh, no, LCES actually came from a zigzag hotshot. Um and zigzag is right here where I live in in Oregon. It's not too far away. Um, and it, and I don't know if he was actually uh, a former, if he was a veteran or not. But uh, no, he he just came. And it's just a, a quick way to remember. Hey, you need you need your situational awareness when you're going into someplace. You see fire and you want to put it out, so you want to rush in. But LCES is like, all right, first I got to establish someone who's watching me, make sure it's all cool. You know, I, mean, I got to make sure I have some communication. If I go in there, I got to have at least two escape routes to get out. That's not going to get burnt over. And then I have to go back to a safety zone where I'll be completely safe. So it's in that only, that's only shoot 20, 20 years old. Maybe that I have to look it up, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of, uh, uh, military, uh, military acronyms and such, but, and, and, and I guess that's what, makes it seem similar to the military but uh you know there's lifetime firefighters and, and uh, uh it's it's a i don't know it's 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 a great thing to do and I, I love doing it and uh and i love running into somebody who's been fighting fire for 30 years and just talking to them 
there is definitely a brotherhood between, uh, even if they never served before, there's a brotherhood between, you know, firefighters and the military. Well, if someone is interested in becoming a firefighter, uh, wildland firefighter, how would they go about doing that? Okay, so in this scenario, how old are they? <laughs> it, okay, let's say that they are uh, around the age where somebody would maybe graduate college, 20, 22, 23, 24. Yeah, I would apply if, if, if I was in that area and I didn't join the military, uh, I would have either joined uh, uh, the U.S. Forest Service or the Oregon Department of Forestry. Uh, today, uh, I, would, I encourage you know young people young people to join the u.s forest uh, u.s forest service that you know there's more than just firefighting in the forest service i mean i know that's what's on the news but you know you have the recreational side of it you have the timber sales um you have um you know there's somebody that there's a groups that go out and create those hikes that we love so much and they take care of those beautiful places that we go to i think that would be an amazing responsibility for a young uh young person uh, I think that they would feel like they're doing something important in this world. Um, the Oregon Department of Forestry, you know, I would join that as well. There's a huge uh, opportunity, especially for young women in, in the uh, ODF, to, to really go up the ranks pretty quick. I'm, I'm encouraging my daughter to join ODF. I would love for her to get a job there. She really loves the outdoors, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's just a great job. Now, if you're a little older, I mean, they only they only they don't hire the old guys like me. That's I want. That's why I want contracting. Um, but uh, the contractors are amazing too. I fit right in because I taught college. You know, after I got out of the infantry and I, you know, I got all blown up and everything, and my body wasn't working too well. I said I wanted to use my brain muscle instead of my my back muscle when I hadn't been working too well. So I I, I went to college and I and I took five years, but I got my master's degree and then I started teaching college after that. And so I teach college throughout the year and then the summertime is fight fire. So really, if you're going to be a contractor, you're only fighting fire, you know, three months out of the year. So you got to have something else going on. And for those of us who are not firefighters, uh, I guess fire civilians, maybe you would call us. What's the best way that we can support y'all? Hmm. You know, uh, I've never seen anyone who doesn't support us. You know, I've never, I've never came into a town and seen that old guy with his arms crossed, like "Get out of here, we don't want you." Uh, I everybody that I've uh, run into, they do an amazing job of supporting the firefighters. I mean, we've had people buy us socks and underwear. You know, uh, anytime we go to, like, if we're in our greens and yellows, that's the those are the the kind of the uniform that we have. Uh, there it's fire, fire return clothes, but you you have to have a yellow top, long sleeve, green pants, uh, cargo pants and boots. And every time we're wearing our greens and yellows, we go into a coffee place, you know, like, a I don't know what we have here, Dutch brothers or whatever. People are buying it for us. We never have to spend, you know, our own money. Uh, we go into a restaurant after, you know, a big long day. Usually somebody will offer to buy our dinner and such. We, uh, you know, you never look for it, but it's always there, and it's an amazing thing. So uh, everybody's supporting us already, and I, I appreciate that. And and, and that's what I, I would love to say, say thank you to everybody because it, it's hard. It's a hard day. You're out there for two weeks straight at least, uh, and then you're working at 
at least 12 hour days. Sometimes I, I've, I've gone a couple two week stretches where we're working 16 hour days and you got enough time off just to try to go to sleep, maybe take a shower one every, once every three days. And, 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 you know, uh, and that's about it. Then you're back up and out there working again. And sometimes like if there's a big fire and emergency, I've worked, you know, a good 20 hour stretch and, and it's, it's tough. It's a really hard job. And I know I do it to myself and I, I love to do it, but it's also great to be appreciated, uh, when that hard work to be appreciated. So thank you everyone who has bought me a, a coffee or anything else. <laughs> yes. Thank you all. And, uh, Sean's book is available now. You can get it at arcadiepublishing.com or you can get it in your local bookstore. In fact, I just, this past February, I was in Portland and I was there just a, maybe a week. I was inside of Powell's maybe a week before your event there. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, we couldn't we couldn't coordinate it because we had another leg of the trip we had to go on, to, and I was hoping it was going to match up, but it didn't. Uh, well, hey, Pals is a beautiful place, and uh, it was yeah, it was great. You know, I, I just had a buddy tell me that it was in a True Value Hardware store. He saw the book, so and then it's in Costco, and it's all over the place. And so, if if we're wrapping up, I do want to say one thing. Uh, I'm, of course, I'm donating the what I get from this book to the Doug Dunbar Memorial Scholarship. He was one of the firefighters who died on Storm King Mountain uh, years ago. And in fact, I think they just had their 25th anniversary. Uh, Doug Dunbar and I, we, we played baseball together in the same team up here in McKenzie Bridge uh, in the McKenzie Middle School. And uh, he went on to become a Prineville hotshot. I went into the military. And so uh, his scholarship goes to a senior at McKenzie uh, high school and uh, helps him go to college. And so I'm going to go ahead and give all the money that I'd get to that scholarship. So, um, please. And is there a website where people can donate? Oh, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't even, I should know that. Uh, if you look at, well, if you find it, let me know and I'll put it in our show notes. Yeah. Um, I know that the forest service is controlling the memorial or, or, uh, at least, you know, managing it. I don't think there's an actual website for it, and, and honestly, it hasn't—it uh, hasn't had a whole lot of money in it lately because you know it's been a while. Um, so I'm hoping with this book, you know, give them a couple thousand dollars, and that would be really great. So, uh, yeah, if people can buy it. That'd be awesome. Absolutely, and uh, Sean, I got to tell you, it's—it's uh, it's been a true honor to talk with you today, uh, and I can't thank you enough for doing this interview with me. Yeah, let me know uh, when this comes out. I would love to to share it with everybody. Uh, I think a podcast in the in the history uh, in the history press or Acadia Publishing that just goes hand in hand. That's a great idea. There's so many great, interesting people. You know, I have friends up here in Oregon that are it's it's a close knit uh, writing community in in this state, and I have a lot of writing friends that are actually doing books for the history press. Uh, so it, it's it's pretty fun to watch, and uh, I love being a part of the. I love being part of the writing crew for the History Press and Arcadia Publishing. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And, you know, I I got to admit, this has been pretty cool for me starting this podcast because I kind of, I think I used it on the last episode, this term, but, well, actually, this will be my third episode to use this term, to nerd out, to learn history, because I'm a, you know, history is, you know, is, is one of my passions, probably my biggest passion. Uh, so it's, you know, a great treat for me to be able to talk with our authors and you know just learn more talk have a conversation uh, learn more about them learn more about you know the history uh, of why they wanted to write the book so it's a lot of fun for me yeah it's a blast I, 
I, I can imagine. I would love uh, to have your job. I'm uh, I'm a little envious. I'm, I'm going to try to write another one about where I'm at. There's so many crazy stories that are up here. Uh, up, you know, back. I'm in the Cascades in Central Oregon. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty insane. So, I'm going to give another pitch over to Artie and see what happens. <laughs> oh, let's do it. Then we'll record another podcast on that one. Yeah, all right. All right. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you again, Sean. I appreciate you. Yeah, hey, thank you. See you. See you, Johnny. And thank you for joining us for another edition of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press.